Pastor Xavier Reese talks about the virtue of faith. Faith is not mind over matter. Faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not produced by motivational speakers. I call them spiritual cheerleaders. They come to get you all worked up. And that's supposed to bring revival to the church. Not so. Faith is believing and trusting and committing oneself absolutely to the dependency on God, what He has done, to what He can do, and to what He will do. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. If you want to get stronger, you need to lift weights. If you want to gain endurance, you need to run. Well, what do you do when you want to increase your faith? Today, Pastor Xavier takes us to his study in the book of Deuteronomy as he shares five principles for growing closer to the Lord. Let's listen. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I've entitled the message, Life in the Promised Land. Some of the old hymns present the promised land as a place of no conflict, no problems. But the Bible um, sheds much light on this mistaken notion. Moses is calling Israel to hear the word of his mouth carefully, for they would soon cross over Jordan into the promised land. And therefore Moses declares to them five aspects about the life in the promised land in verses 1 through 6. Let me read that and it will give you the five aspects of them. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over Jordan today and go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. You think God's trying to say something to them? Five aspects about life in the promised land. First, it is a life of faith. You find this in the first portion of verse 1. Secondly, a life of trials and testings, the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Thirdly, a life of following God, the first portion of verse 3. And fourthly, a life of co-participation, and of course that's with God, and that's the rest of verse 3. And then you have a life of potential danger. And you find this in the last three verses, four, five, and six. Let's look at the first of the five aspects about life in the promised land. Moses first declares that life in the promised land is a life 
of faith. Notice he says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. The people had been delivered from Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world to which stands against all, and all stands against that which is for God. The world often is, is uh, represented this way as we go through scriptures and we say that, that God delivered us from Egypt. It was a place where we used to live contrary to God, a place where we thought we knew God, but God did not know us, a place where we were in bondage, though we didn't know it. We thought we were in control. Egypt was a place where bondage and slavery was the manner of life. It was a life of sin, that which dominated, that which controlled me, that which really brought destruction to my life. Sin is so deceptive because it appears so glamorous, so attractive, so exciting, so thrilling. Because that's all that people say about it. But they never tell us of the pain, the consequences, the destruction. And so because we are young and are foolish, we get sucked in. And it becomes bondage. At first it may be exciting. At first it may seem fun. But then when sin hits you, though it may be sweet in your mouth first, it will be bitter in your belly afterwards. That's the deceptiveness of sin. Egypt is a place from where God delivered every person who was born again by trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. Even as they left Egypt and they were there that night before and they put the blood over the doorpost and the lentil and the angel of death came and when he saw that blood, he leaped over the house. Not one Hebrew died who was under the blood, but every house had a dead person, the firstborn, from Pharaoh's house to the least. You see, it is by the blood of Christ that we are delivered. No other way. None whatsoever. But not only did, were the people delivered from Egypt, but the people walked through the Red Sea. Remember they fled and then Pharaoh chased them? The Red Sea is a type of baptism. The identity of the new life. When we bury you in baptism, Romans 6 says, it's a type of death, symbolic of the old man. But it doesn't make you holy. It doesn't forgive you of sin. It's just a public confession of what is going on outwardly as to what has happened inwardly. The symbolism is death, death to the old life. But not only through the Red Sea, but the people had been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Now the wilderness is a type of carnal life. The wilderness journey had a legitimate time. Don't ever forget that. You ready for it? Eleven days. How tragic that so many Christians spend more than 11 days in the wilderness. Now you may spend 20 days. Some may spend a month. Some may spend a year. Some a decade. Some a lifetime. It's a life of carnality. You always seem to be the focus of your problem. You always seem to be the focus of attention. You always feel that you have been shortchanged. You and you and you. And that's the problem. The wilderness represents a life of unbelief. Hebrews says they did not enter in because of unbelief. Remember they came to Kadesh Barnea and God says enter in. They said, oh no, the giants, we send spies and this and that. I says, fine, don't go in. Now you're going to wander for 40 years and, and lead the greatest death march you're ever going to know. Oh, no, we're kidding. God, we'll go in. Tell them not to go up, Moses, because I'm not with them. 
Oh, no, we're going up. We go up, they get defeated. It seems when God tells us to move, we say no. And then when he says don't move, we want to move. It represents a life of unbelief, complaining, murmuring, provoking, and testing God always. Rather than saying, oh, God, we say, oh, God. Now, same words. But the attitude's different, isn't it? The wilderness is a place of no progress. You go nowhere spiritually. You're always the same. You're always there. There's no advance. Now, I hope you know that we're much like a year in the life of the Spirit. There's autumn, winter, spring, summer, fall. Now, sometimes we have longer winters than we want to. But we do have springs and summers. And as a Christian, you will hit all seasons, I guarantee you. And sometimes you'll have bad years. But that's not the manner of your life every year. And if it is, then I think you're in the wilderness. You need to move on. You need to get your eyes on the cross. You need to realize what God has done for you, what he wants to do for you, and what he will do for you as you depend upon him. The wilderness is a place of death in the spiritual sense in that one does not enjoy the life of abundancy that one can live up to. Jesus said he came to give us life, and not only life, but life more abundantly. But my refusal to trust God, my refusal to believe God, my refusal to grow and to march and to move into the promised land keeps me in the state of carnality. The people are now going to cross the Jordan. So Egypt, Red Sea, the wilderness, here they are now. They're going to cross Jordan. Now Jordan's a type of reckoning the old man to be dead and living in the new life in the new man by faith. Jordan is the boundary between the wilderness and the promised land, the life of sight versus the life of faith. And maybe you're standing there this morning, you know, and you, you've been in the wilderness, or maybe you're there, and you're there at Kadesh Barnea, spiritually speaking. And you look here and you know what it is to live by sight. Feelings, emotions, circumstance, situations. But you can also look this way and you, you can see what God is telling you. I want you to live in faith this way. And you're there to make a decision and you've got to make a decision. Are you going to remain in the wilderness or are you going to go into the promised land? Only you can make that decision. I cannot make that for you. Jordan does not represent heaven. For there will be no walled cities or no giants in heaven. Many of the old hymns say that. <laughs> They're mistaken. Jordan would be crossed in faith when the feet of the priests touched the flood waters of the Jordan while the Red Sea was crossed by sight after it was parted. Do you see the difference? Oh, God parted Jordan. No, 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 no. You tell him to step into the Jordan in flood season, then I'll part it. <laughs> see, it's an upward step in life in the Spirit. Now, the Red Sea was legitimate. They were just coming out of Egypt. So God says, I'll party. Let's walk through. But now they've seen all those miracles. They've seen God work. Now he says, no, no, no. Now you step in. Then I'll show you some mighty things. <laughs> you see? It's a progression. There's a maturity. You see, life in the promised land is a life of faith. No longer could they live like they did in Egypt. A life of faith. That's the first thing he tells about life in the promised land. It's a life of faith. Secondly, 
It's a life of trials and testings. Verse 1 and the rest of 1 and 2, it says, And this possess nations greater and mightier than yourself, great cities and fortified up to heaven, a people greater and tall, and descendants of Anakim, whom you know and whom you heard of said, Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Now notice first, the first category of trials and testings will deal with circumstances. Circumstances and situations. The life of faith encounters greater and mightier circumstances than ourselves. Greater and mightier, represented here by the nations of the cities which are greater and mightier than themselves. Now, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 says that we go through needful trials. We go for a season and, and they come in various sizes and shapes. Circumstances. We don't have control of circumstances. What do we have control of? Very, very little in life. The person who cannot, of their own ability, handle the circumstance or situations, they can't. So God says, I lead you the way where your circumstances and situations will be greater than you. Why? So the person is made fully aware of his dependency on God for the circumstance situation. God doesn't lead you the easy way. God leads you the way that you have to depend upon him. Because if not, we'd never go to him. Of course, we'd be very apologetic, say, oh, I don't want to bother him, you know, he's just... No, he drives me the way that is mightier than I so that I have to depend upon him always. Notice also the life of faith to cross Jordan is the standard for life in the promised land. That's going to be the standard now. Faith is not mind over matter. Faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not produced by motivational speakers. This is what's going on in churches today. Mind over matter, positive thinking, and Motivational speakers. I call them spiritual cheerleaders. They come to get you all worked up. And that's supposed to bring revival to the church. Not so. Faith is believing and trusting and committing oneself absolutely to the dependency on God, what he has done, to what he can do, to what he has promised, and to what he will do. Remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Therefore, I have to be around the Word of God, right? I have to be around God's Word. So what? So faith can produce in me. I have to hear God. I have to see God work in the midst of His people. I have to be involved in the work of God. I have to be a person who is called the people of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews uh, 11, 1. And then 6 says that uh, those that come to God must believe that He is and that He is a reward of those who diligently seek Him. So there you have one aspect of faith. Substance of things hoped for, everything that's not seen. Only one aspect. There's different ways to define faith in Scripture. So I believe in what He has declared. And I trust Him for it. But I move only when He tells me to move. I don't become presumptuousness. Uh, presumptuousness is not faith. I move when God tells me to move. But notice also the, the life of faith applies to the promises of life in their context. This is very important. A lot of people today in positive confession and, and those type of theologies, they, they take things out of context. Let me give you a very simple rule. First, there are promises that are absolutely going to be fulfilled regardless of anything or anyone. Example, the birth of Christ. No one could stop it. The return of Christ. Nobody can stop it. The judgment of believer and non-believer, nobody can stop it. It's going to happen regardless what? Absolute promises. Then there are promises that 
were given to individuals in the past. And God may speak to me as I'm reading that passage and apply it personally to my own life for the circumstance or the situation. And I know that God is talking to me. And he gives me the faith to believe and trust him. And his peace comes upon me. And I know that God has spoken to me. Example, Gideon was told not to fear for the Midianites, despite their number in Judges 7. Now I may go through Joshua, and maybe I have a circumstance such like that. People are against me, and there are many at work. And God says, hey. And I'm reading, and he says, this is for you, X. Ah, oh, Lord, thank you. But now I'm responsible when I say God spoke to me, right? So if it doesn't come to pass, I can't blame God, okay? He didn't make a mistake, but I did, right? And you trust him. Thirdly, there are promises that are given to every believer in order to live the life of faith. This is for every believer. Everybody has these. Now, whether we apply them, that's a different matter. But these promises are for everybody, and they will affect individuals. They don't affect us in terms of the ultimate plan of God, though they can affect us corporately if we're not working with one another because we affect one another. To believe, first of all, that all my sins are forgiven forever. Psalm 103, 12 says that as far as east and the west, uh, buried in the deepest ocean, Micah says. I have to apply that to my own life. No one can do that for me. Now, if I don't apply that, then I'm miserable to be around, right? Because I'm always saying, hey, do you think, you know, about this sin? And I'm always in condemnation, and, and, and I'm not really an asset to you, right? I'm not really building the body up, right? I have to make that application to my own life. To believe the promise of the new nature to overcome sin and the nature of sin in 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4. I have to believe that. I have to step out in that. You cannot do that for me. If I don't, it hinders me and it hinders the body of Jesus Christ. To have access to Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3 says, I have to believe that. I have to make application of that. No one can do that for me. These are but three examples of how individual promises to all of us as being born again can affect us and also can hinder us. No one can do them for us. So those are three ways that you can look at the promises of God. Very important in their context. The second category of trials and testings will deal with people. First a circumstance situation, then people. Now, the life of faith encounters difficult and problem people, represented here by the Anakins, a great and tall people. First uh, Peter four twelve to thirteen says that we th we shouldn't think it strange when we fall into all kinds of fiery trials, hot ones as some strange thing has happened to us. In other words, that is to be our nature uh, of life and our call. We are born into warfare. Do you realize that? The minute you're born again, you're born into warfare. People who live in close contact with us can be problem people. Close family, immediate family, or our marriage. Our husband or wife could be antagonistic to our faith, being non-believer, or they could be carnal and just compromising. And they can become a problem to our life, very much so. Our children may push us to the edge as we attempt to guide them and proclaim the guidelines and the boundaries as well as a consequence for a godly life. And they may rebel or disobey. 
problem people. Our immediate family and in-laws may be a source of agitation, false accusations, slander, misunderstandings, problem people. Then there are people who we work with or work for in our jobs. They may mock us for our faith in Christ. They may dislike us for our commitment to Christianity. They may willfully be obscene and profane to provoke us. All these things are reality in life, is it not? We're not exempt from all these. As a matter of fact, we are promised all these. Why is it that we're always complaining about what we have been promised? <laughs> As if some strange thing has happened unto us. But also the life of faith is challenged by intimidation of certain people. The phrase, who is able to stand before the Anakims, that's intimidation. That's the world's strategy, it's tactics. The problem of difficult people is no problem for God. God removed Korah and his friends, remember? He opened up the earth. So we know that problem people are no problem for God. They're only a problem to me. The problem of power is controlled by God. Jesus told Pilate, you have no power if it weren't given to you of God. So I understand that problem people are no problem to God. I understand that the power, God is in control. He's the one that has his hand on everything. But the problem of authority is clearly delineated also. We are to obey God rather than man whenever it's a contradiction or opposition to God's word. I don't even need to pray about it. When it's a direct contradiction to God's word, I can say, I obey God. Because that's God's will. Now, I must make sure that it's contrary to God's word, not to my feelings, not to my emotions, not to my pride, not to uh, my interpretation. I have to make absolutely sure. Okay? But you know what? The Lord at times allows a believer to suffer. And in fact, at times allows him to lose his life. Like Jeremiah was cut in two, tradition tells us. Stephen was allowed to be stoned even as Saul stood there overseeing the clothes that was put at his feet. James was killed with the sword by Herod. Now, I know God is in control. I know that problem people are no problem to God. And I know that God can do all this, but sometimes God allows it. Does that bother you? It doesn't bother me. Does that mean that God's no longer in control? Oh, no. Do you see the importance of having a biblical perspective? Peter says that I am to commit myself to him in my suffering as a faithful creator. A faithful creator. And so life in the promised land is a life of trials and testings. Do you understand this as a Christian? Do you deal with it biblically? Or are you always under your burden? Is it always crushing you? 
Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If your burden is heavy, then it's not the burden of Jesus Christ. It's your burden. You've put it on yourself somehow. And so we need to understand what the Scriptures teach. Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth about the help and rest that can only be found in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can request a copy of today's encouraging study from the book of Deuteronomy called Life in the Promised Land. As always, you can request a copy for just $4 on CD. And why not encourage a friend or loved one with this message once you're through listening? The title to ask for once again is Life in the Promised Land, or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make a request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please, don't forget to include the call letters of this station when you contact us. Now, is there any benefit to living a life that's driven by faith? You'll find the answer when you join Pastor Xavier Reese on the next edition of Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 